Uh, what impacted me the most was the just the, the brutality of the killing. No one should lose their life to senseless violence, but to lose it in that way at such a young age, she hadn't experienced anything. So to know that baby went through what she went through alone is heart-wrenching. From the moment I first heard about it, because some of the pictures that I saw when I first started looking into it, they didn't show, I didn't see the ones that we actually have. You just saw pictures of her bound hands and little, little bitty fingers. But after doing this documentary and seeing everything that I saw, through the research is the the to know that people can be that brutal and I'm at a loss for words almost. It's horrible. It's horrible. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast originates from and connects the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. I remember an incident back in 1983 that was particularly disturbing, and it was disturbing to the metropolitan St. Louis area because it was the murder of a young girl, and it wasn't just a murder. It was a decapitation murder. And it wasn't just a decapitation murder, but the fact is that her body has never been claimed. She's never been identified. And it's horrific when parents find a child who has gone missing or an individual of a family member has gone missing. But when that family member is never found, it creates this uncertainty. When that individual is murdered, that even creates more of an uncertainty. Or people who are are found somewhere and never claimed. And in studio, we have Lee Barber, who's assistant director of a movie, and Shelby Sosa, who's cinematographer of the movie, that has been produced by the bird, Sosa. He's founder of 314 Bird Studios. It's the movies and the projects called Our Precious Hope, St. Louis's Baby Jane Doe. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for having us. I saw this documentary... It was sent, and I know for those of you who are wanting to maybe get some information on this, you can go to 314birdstudios.com. The movie, the documentary is on Roku, YouTube, and Amazon Fire TV. So I guess I'll start with both of you. What was the drive to do this? Because this happened well before both of you were born. And like I said, I remember this, so that kind of dates me a little bit. Right. But what was the drive? What was the impetus behind producing this and getting this on film? The drive really was that we wanted to raise awareness, first of all, because it is sad that someone goes missing and we do not recover them if they do go missing. And also to give her a name because it's been so long that she has been in the system without a name. And that is what we are trying to portray. We want to raise awareness to get her name. So in case our family was looking for it and they did not find her yet, we can finally give them that peace that they deserve. The drive for the movie was that my, I hope my dad is okay with this. He actually had caught COVID when COVID came and he was scared that he was going to not be here with us. So he said if he did get it, he was going to sell it, buy movie equipment, and we're going to shoot a documentary to raise awareness. He got COVID, 
sold this car, and we're here today. <laughs> He's a man of his word. <laughs> right. Yes. What, now, what fascinated him about this particular story? It happened when he was a child, I believe, in the 80s, and his, my grandma, his mom, would tell, scare him, say, you got to come home when you get out of school. They're cutting little kids' heads off. They might kidnap you. So he was afraid of that, and that always stuck with him. So when he had a chance to do something positive with it, he ran with it. That's wonderful. Lee, what about you? What kind of interested you in this particular project? Well, it was done. It, it interested me because it was a year before, after I was born. So it was like, okay, that was 83 and I was born in 82. So I always had interest in it just because of the fact that it was someone that was never identified. And it was a child. And to be murdered the way that she was, it just was, it was gruesome. So I always wanted to, because it was something that was in my own backyard, which is St. Louis, I just wanted to make sure that the people from our city actually knew about it because it was, and when I, I met Shelby and her dad and they had the same motivations and it was like the stars aligned and the clouds open and mm-hmm. go forward. Now, I, I love that the fact that your dad did what he did, not that he got COVID, but that he was true to his word mm-hmm. and he did this. And the beauty of nowadays with, phones mm-hmm. and everything like that is you can make anybody can make a documentary mm-hmm. did he have any prior training or did you all have any kind no. of prior training like that i went to school for tv and radio and unfortunately i haven't found my field with using that i've done a lot of other things but when he did that he said i want to make a documentary and there was my chance and i said here we go Fast forward, we're here today. <laughs> and you took, you ran with the opportunity. Yes. Now, what obstacles did you find along the way as you were doing what you were doing with the uh, cinematography? A lot of people in St. Louis don't necessarily like women in the field. They more so want a masculine person. That's one of the things that I've ran into. Or they don't trust a woman's word on some things. They just, it's a masculine field, so it's hard to get into that. Now, the ladies that are into that, I do look up to them, and I hope I have a spot one day. But until then, I am working to get it, and I'm working very hard for it. So hopefully, if anybody's hiring, I am looking. <laughs> there, there you go. Lee, what was yours? Uh, did you have any kind of background with that? Well, actually, I, I own a company called Acting and me and Bird actually met on a set. I was producing an internet comedy sketch show, and he was a, a main character on uh, a couple of the episodes. And he saw that it was me and a friend of mine, and he was just like, man, I like your drive. I like what you do. And he's like, my daughter just graduated with a communications degree, which, and she's looking to get into the industry. Would you mind if she came and did some shadow work with you? And I, Come on. And I, right. I brought him in. Shelby started coming and filming. And before I knew it, Bird, have you ever thought about starting a, a TV station? And I was like, no. <laughs> and he was like, I just sold the bins. I'm getting all this equipment. With your equipment and my equipment, we can do it. I was like, okay, let's do it. And after we wrapped with the internet comedy sketch show, we went in full production under 314 Bird Studios in collaboration with Acting the Food Productions. And we brought you guys Precious Hope, our Precious Hope. Wow, wow. Now let's get into the storyline a little bit so people can understand. I don't want to give anything away. No spoilers here, okay? <laughs> because people need to watch it. Right. It is not for young children. Yeah, we tried to keep it with PG-13. Yeah. It's pretty graphic. It's, it's pretty graphic. There are, there are no photographs of her per se, 
without a head. I just want to give that out there. But there are. Oh, yeah. I obviously didn't catch it. So yeah, there is. There's one. Okay. Yeah. All right. I didn't catch that. So folks, just want to warn you out there. And some of the things we may say today may upset some people. But this is unfortunately how life has been. Mm-hmm. And for this particular girl, this is what she experienced. So we want to try to find some closure for that. So let's talk about the storyline a little bit and what you found out. And so take us back to the beginning, if you The beginning when we were Googling it, we actually watched a couple of YouTube videos. And then when we drove around the area that she was in, we found some stuff that wasn't correct from the YouTube videos. So that's what made us more interested because they're not from our city. They don't know our day-to-day life. They don't know how we interact with each other and things like that. So that would help us aid us into some of our questions in ways that we wanted to know the type of information and to be able to bring the video the way that we wanted to present it. Let me see. Do you have anything to say, yeah. Romeo, with that? And so with the, in the beginning of the story, the way the police got involved was it was two guys. They were supposedly their car broke down. And they went into a building to try to find stuff to work on the well, to prop the hood of the car up. And so that's what they told the police. But as they went into the cellar, they got into the area of the basement where the furnace room was. And it was just too dark to see. So one guy decided to use his lighter to get light in the room and happened to look down and discovered her body. And so they take off. They call the police. And that's how the police got involved. And I was surprised at the amount of footage, like video footage from back then. I didn't know that they took a lot of video footage back then. (laughs) I, I, I figured it was just photographs. But it was amazing that you had actual footage and you had to get that from the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Well, we got most of the footage uh, was the news footage. Okay, and, gotcha. And they, I believe that it was, and this is just speculative, this is just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I believe that it was a lot of footage, video footage, because it was such a, a gruesome case. They had to scour neighborhoods to make sure every child in that neighborhood was accounted for. And after they discovered, and then on top of trying to make sure every child is accounted for, they had to scour and look through sewers to try to discover her head because with, with me and Bird, we like to say her head and neck because she was right. decapitated at the shoulder level. Right. So. It wasn't just her head. It was her neck also. Correct. Which, which is really gruesome. Correct. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. We're talking to Lee Barber and Shelby Sosa, who are uh, familiar with the movie documentary, <laughs> Our Precious Hope, St. Louis Baby Jane Doe, as the cinematographer and assistant director. I wanted to read a little bit from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch back in the day. This is back in 1983, because this particular incident occurred uh, in the 5600 block of Clemens Avenue, which is near the old St. Luke's East Hospital. Right. It's right behind that. That's just a little bit north of that. Mm-hmm. But her body was discovered, as you were saying, Lee, by two men. And uh, there was an autopsy, and there's a lot of other things that go into this story that are unusual. Information about how she died, Mm -hmm. where she died, the condition of her body. And again, I don't want to give anything about the documentary (laughs) away. Can you give enough to have a little conversation about that and some other little things that may not be in the documentary that you could discuss with us? Uh, one of the things is that with TV to do everything with all the forensic shows we see, people think that things are just soft right then and there. But in 83, 
forensics was it was not what it is today. It was so hard to get DNA from the child because her body was completely devoid. It was void of blood. It was drained all out. The only only blood that was there was the blood on the wall from when they might have bumped when they brought her in. But that was it. And so they don't know where she was initially killed. They didn't have any way to trace it back to where they could possibly even think where she, where this could have happened. So with, with what made the case so eerie is because it was like kids played in that building. Right. They would run in and out. But it hadn't been vacant that long. It was a couple of years, but it wasn't like in complete disrepair. It was like just one day somebody goes in there and just, boom, there's a child that's not even from this area. And that's what made it the the more, it was just such a, a horrendous thing because all these kids in this neighborhood, that could have been any one of them. Absolutely. And the condition of the body was another thing that the police were like, okay, we know this is a fairly recent death, but like how recent, they they narrowed it down to, I believe it was then, what, five days? Yeah, a week to five. Wow. That she had actually been in that building. And so they knew it wasn't long. And then, but her stomach content was empty, so she hadn't eaten. Yeah, so mm-hmm. they they had her stay. You know, she had starved. Or, well, not starved, but she went hungry before they did whatever they did to her. So there was no way. I guess I look at it like they weren't the dumbest criminal, but because to have her stomach be empty, like they thought about it. They right. thought about what they were going to do and how they were going to. Which is very interesting that you say that because a lot of people. I'm not. I'm just speculating now wouldn't go to that degree. So they mm-hmm. knew an autopsy would reveal stomach contents mm-hmm. or would reveal if she is she cleaned or because mm-hmm. they were able to get fingerprints from her. Correct. And ultimately DNA from her. Yeah. And yeah, but that's after many years <laughs> when yeah. that technology finally came on the scene. And I think sometimes like you were saying, Lee, we, we watch these shows on television and we think Oh, man, it's going really fast. Mm-hmm. It does not work that way not at, at all. all. It does not work that way. Not at all. And she had – she was just clothed in a sweater, and she was bound, her hands behind her back. Correct. And then after the detectives had really done a canvassing, they did a, a very thorough, it seemed to me, canvassing. Matter of fact, they accounted for every child – in the metropolitan St. Louis area. Correct. Yes. And wasn't it the Illinois area too? Like yeah, the- once they, once yeah. they. That's an incredible um, way to do that yes, because the way kids move in and out of schools <laughs> exactly. and how the records are never up to date and the fact that they were able to get that because that really eliminated that this girl had to come from outside the state yeah. area. And, and talking with one of our collaborators, he's actually in the documentary. His name is Eric. He was a resident of the area at the time of the murder. He was a 10-year-old child. And for him, he gave us a real good breakdown of how the school system was set up in, mm-hmm. in that time frame. It was very dysfunctional. Yes. Yeah. And so for them to, for the police, I people want to discredit them. With, with Especially with this investigation, they feel like they didn't do enough. But I think they did all they could do with going from non-computer. The schools weren't computer. So they had to keep up with these students on paper. And but luckily they did run into some that were computerized, so it did make it a little easier mm-hmm. to but to go to every school in the St. Louis area and look for all these children they're accounted for. Then to expand it and go out to other surrounding areas and they're accounted for. Then to take it nation nationwide, I, I think they did a phenomenal job. 
law enforcement always wants to look for patterns, or maybe Correct. there's somebody else in another state that has had a similar Correct. kind of uh, murder, an incident like that. The uh, the fact finally she had been in the morgue for what nine months. Mm-hmm. Nobody had claimed her. Yep. And then she ended up getting buried in Washington Park Cemetery, which has a <laughs> yes. whole other story. Yeah. That's a whole other documentary on it. And finally, that talk a little bit about that particular thing, because that has a little – it seems like this particular story of this young girl has one thing after another mm-hmm. yeah. that is like an obstacle for her. It seemed like even yeah. in debt, she couldn't escape yes. nonsense. Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you want to tell them about the cemetery? Or you want to- the cemetery that we went to, it was now today, they said that they've run into a lot of supplying issues with keeping the grass cut, keeping the maintaining of everything. So if you do go past there, it's by the Renaissance, it's the, or by Waffle House, by the Renaissance. It is in disrepair. The grass is growing over tombstones. They've actually buried people on top of people. And weren't we told that it was a couple of Legends buried there. It's a you have, there's five slaves mm-hmm. there. There are people from the um, Spanish-American War. Hmm. Now, I will tell you, as long as I remember that cemetery, it's always been like that. Mm-hmm. Really? Yes. yes. And that's, that cemetery is up by the airport. Mm-hmm. Correct. It's up by Natural Bridge, oh, Natural Bridge and Road, yeah. what is that? Brown yeah. Road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Brown Road. I right. believe. Uh, I'm not for sure. It's just mostly talk I've heard, but the lady who owned it had passed away or something, and she was trying to give it to the city, and the city didn't want it or something like that. And that's why it's in disrepair right now because that's the issue they've been yeah, running trying into. To get, uh, trying to get volunteers to help clean up the area, but it's so much because of no one's been able to take care of it that it's very hard. The little bit of help they do get, they can only clear what, but mm-hmm. when you go further in there, you cannot see all of the tombstones and everything. There's trees growing over it. There's grass. They're we actually found one of the people who were cutting grass. He was there the day that they buried her, and he helped us find her tombstone. Without him, we would have never found it. We weren't even Mr. in Freddy the right Jefferson. area. And she didn't even have a tombstone for a while. It was a school in um, East St. Louis that raised money. And they raised that money and donated a headstone for her. Mm-hmm. And when they placed the headstone, because they did, they placed it in the wrong spot. So they literally placed it maybe three feet from her diagonally. So it, it was a mess. But the woman that, that actually was running the cemetery at that time committed suicide mm-hmm. because she was uh, becoming, she was coming under investigation because they were, they were burying bodies on top of bodies. The disrepair. If you go into the cemetery, there are, Tombstones, when I say they're completely turned upside down, as if they were planted that way. And some of them are just knocked over and broke. And Mr. Freddie Jefferson is the one that we spoke with. He was the guy that actually exhumed her body mm. on the day that they, because they were going to exhume her to do the isotope testing. Mm-hmm. And he he was the one that exhumed her. And we just happened to be in the cemetery getting footage of the cemetery. And Bird said, uh, hey, ask him if he knows where the grave is. And so... I, I jump out the car and I walk over to him. He's cutting the grass. And I asked him, did he know where the grave was? And he was like, oh, yeah, it's back over there. And I'm like, where? Over here? And he was like, yeah. He was like, you know what? He cut the lawnmower off and he, he walked down with me. He said, I'll show you. I said, okay. I said, so have you were you here when it uh, happened? And he, he's oh, yeah, I'm the guy that actually helped exhume her body. Oh, wow. So it was, again, it was like the clouds opened up, you know. Right. And he walked me back to that. I'm like, would you mind doing an interview with us? And he said, yeah, I'll do one. So I run back to the truck and I, I get Bird and I'm going to get the cameras and, and me, him and Shelby, we going down and we 
talk to Mr. Jefferson. He shows us exactly where her gravesite is and where the headstone is. And they they dug three different space three different spots to try to find her body when they were trying to dig her up for the isotope testing and they couldn't find her. They lost her body. And it took some Washington University students to do some photo triangulations and looking at the pictures where she was originally buried, they triangulated where she was and they actually had to petition to get to dig one more time. And they actually got it done. They and those they students were spot on. That that was a fascinating portion of the documentary. That, yeah. that otherwise she would have been lost. Correct. And had it not been for those photographs that mm-hmm. were taken at the time when she was first buried, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very small ceremony. Yeah. I think there were the four pallbearers and then the, and, the and minister, the, yep. and mm-hmm. that was pretty much it. Very unfortunate as compared to the second time, which we will get into. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but right. we, we will get into that. So when we come back in our next segment, what I'd like to talk about is why she was exhumed okay. and to – obviously get some DNA because there were some other, what I'm going to call developments there. (laughs) And then her second burial and comparing that to the first. Okay. And then we will go into, because there's also a book that has been written on this Mm -hmm. from a Chicago author. So we want to talk about that and how that played into all of this here. Is that okay for you guys? All right. Mark, this St. Louis baby Jane Doe is just an unbelievable kind of story. I, I am looking forward to the next part of this interview because during during the documentary they talked with the with an author who wrote about this and I found it interesting that throughout the interview he kept saying wow these uh, film crew is finding out more stuff than I ever knew so <laughs> your book must not be real good and I don't mean to say it like that but it's shucks did you do a lot of research, research. in it yeah for this book and apparently not so what, whatever y'all did it sure put him him yeah. in his place. I don't want to say that, but I am. But So I'm excited about the second half. Yeah. No, I agree with you. When I was watching that, I was like, oh, you wrote the book. What about your research? And and I'll, I'm not calling him out, but I'm just saying his name. The name right. of his book was St. Louis's Baby Jane Doe, and it's by Brian Alaspa. I guess mm-hmm. that's how it's pronounced. Alaspa, yeah. You had interviewed him, and then he was like, I didn't know that, and I didn't know that. So did you know about his book ahead of time, read his book. Then how did that fit into all of this in the scheme of laying out how you were going to do the documentary and finding information? When we were going to do the documentary, we had looked up information. We had found that he wrote the book. We did read some parts of it. I'm not sure if my dad purchased it and read that book himself. I read some stuff online. We actually, He actually reached out to him and said, hey, we're doing a documentary about this. Would you like to be a part of it? And he was very excited. He said, yes, I would. So then we went and did the interview. And you can see in the video, he does say, yeah, you guys raised some great points. But information very was very limited then. When he was a, a journalist in St. Louis, he was in University City right uh, down the street from it. So he how he likes to put it, it was different in the ways he got information because back then people weren't giving information right. because of some stuff that he has that he could not have control. So he did the best he could with the information he had. Now, fast forward to today's times, we have more information that we've researched and he was very excited for it. It made him more interested. He actually read and reread his book. Good. He was very excited. <laughs> Good. Good. And the, not the and the thing with with him is and I and it's not just him, I think it would be anyone 
like I've watched a lot of YouTube stuff about this particular case. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of misinformation out. Mm-hmm. And not only that, for me, that's one of the biggest reasons I wanted to do this particular mm-hmm. case is because I'm from here. Mm-hmm. So I can go and do and see different things that people that aren't from here can't, especially if you're not coming here to do any research on your documentary. Right. You're just putting it out based on information that's already out there. Then you're just going to basically just copy paste what right. the other people do. But for for us, the way we decided to do it was we wanted to go in depth, go into the neighborhood, and Bird actually created um, a page on Facebook for our documentary. And so we got a lot of information through people that way, and that's how we ended up actually meeting with Eric. And he oh, he saw that, and he yeah, I'm from the area. I was there when this happened. Oh wow! And so and 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 the good thing about Bird, like he does, he takes everything with a grain. If you tell him, well, yeah, I was there. Bird goes back and he looks right. to see if any old pictures or anything. And boom, there's Eric sitting in a tree. And that's what he told him. I was in a tree when they brought her out. We got in the tree to look over mm-hmm. the crowd. Oh, my. And there he is. And, and Mr. Jefferson, Freddie Jefferson at the cemetery, told us that he was the one that exhumed us. Bird He's went back and looked at well. the pictures. And mm-hmm. boom, there he is. So mm-hmm. we made sure that everything that we put out was verified. We didn't want to put out any falsities because we want to get the most impactful information out. Right. To try to solve this thing. And that's not really our goal is not to solve it. It's just to bring attention back to it. Shelby, you were very generous in your description of that. And I, Mark and I were probably a little bit more focused, laser focused on, on that. But technology has changed. Information, mm-hmm. the ability to gain information mm-hmm. has changed now. And you have a lot of people coming in, the, the true crime people. And, yeah. you know, they like to investigate these things and write their little book or do their little podcast or whatever they're doing. Right, right. And you're exactly right in that there's a lot of misinformation. So how did you sort through what was misinformation and the real information? Because did did it collide? Did it like all of a sudden, that's not what this person said, and but these people are saying this. How did you sort through that? A lot of it was through, through footwork and just internet searches and, and speaking with people from the area that were there during the time. Like when we, like in the documentary, you'll see where they were talking about a candy store operating right out of a house right, right next door and stuff right. like that. And I actually have a friend of mine who he's an older guy, but I grew up around him and I've known him my entire life. And once we dropped the documentary, he reached out to me. He was like, man, I didn't know you were doing a documentary off of that because I used to play in that house when it was vacant. It's just like Eric. So it was, it's, that's how we got a lot of information to find out what could be true because we talked to people mm-hmm. that were there and then talking to Detective Bragoon, mm-hmm. we got from the horse's mouth because, you know, he, he never did a documentary. He only just did news interviews. Really? So mm-hmm. to sit down and talk with him, and that was, again, and uh, so talking with him helped us to, to dispel a lot of the misinformation. So you mentioned new information. What new information did you uncover in this process? They, but at one point, they didn't know. They never released to the public that she had actually been sexually assaulted. Okay. And so when we actually attained the medical examiner's report and were able to see that she actually was sexually assaulted, so... Now it's okay. Was there a rape kit done? We we need to. So it's other avenues that. But we're trying to get some information. Get the, the information out so people can start looking. I don't want to give away too much. So let's go to where the we're getting to a point where it's okay. We need to find out more information. Technology's mm-hmm. changed, and there was this not cry, but really interest in exhuming her body. Correct. And we had talked about 
in the earlier segment about Howe's trying to locate and how the Washington University students mm-hmm. helped find out where she was located. So she gets exhumed, mm-hmm. okay, and take it from there. What did they find out? And then let's go from the point of what they found out back to another burial. Once she was exhumed, they they sent off two different labs to do isotope testing, but really they the, the Smithsonian did a lot and with the isotope testing. And basically they just took water from her bones to try to narrow down due to the, the minerals and everything in the water in her bones, what region she could be from. And through that testing, they found out they narrowed it down, but it still was extensive. Yeah, still broad. Yeah, so they were able to narrow down that she could have been from Missouri. Shoot, it was so many other surrounding. A lot of them. And so it's like, that's a lot, but it's that's the most they could do because they still don't have anything to compare her DNA to. So once they did that, we went nationwide searching. So... Is, why isn't, hasn't anyone come forward? Nobody's reported a child missing. or So then that opens the door for other questions. Okay, was it a, a parent that was involved in this, or right. is the parent deceased as well? So, it, it, But the, the, the isotope testing did help by narrowing it, because now we know she's not over here from this part of the country, so we can now focus our search a little bit more in this exactly. area. Exactly, exactly. Anything you want to add to that, Shelby? For the testing, they did a lot of great work with the testing. They actually had, after she had passed away, they actually started a couple programs that they use now to help find missing children. Really? And things like that. Yeah, she was one of the first to be put into Was it NAY, something with the um, NACOMIS? Nay no. Something <laughs> that the police say, something. NAMIS, yeah. NAMIS, that's what right. it is. And they actually started that, and she was the first case they put in there. Wow. So that was something that I found that was interesting, because she helped start that program which something of benefit to come out mm-hmm. of that yeah, definitely. so she gets rechecked out a, another autopsy done mm-hmm. the dna testing the isotopes and then it's a new burial mm-hmm. in a new cemetery and there weren't just four people and the minister there <laughs> it's a lot more people yeah and actually i believe Burgoon was a, a pallbearer yes he was mm-hmm. and it was a over an hour ceremony and she was was a pink and white casket and to bury her, they buried her in Calvary Cemetery mm-hmm. in the uh, Garden of Innocence. And it, it, from the pictures that I saw of the ceremony, it was a beautiful ceremony. And they they wanted to, because of what she had went through in life and in death, they decided, let's, we don't want it to be just another, oh, we just bury her. So they gave her an actual ceremony. Which was really probably the honoring point of her whole existence at that point from when she had been found. I agree, because there were so many, like we were talking about, so many stumbling blocks in the way, and it was like, what else is going to happen to Mm -hmm. this young girl? It's crazy. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Lee Barber, who's assistant director, and Shelby Sosa, cinematographer, of the documentary movie Our Precious Hope, St. Louis's Baby Jane Doe. And if you want to see that, you can actually check that out at 314birdstudios.com, 314birdstudios.com, or check it out on Roku, YouTube, or Amazon Fire TV. Now, an episode about this actually appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was the detective, he was on that particular episode and talked yes. about this, or what more do you know about that? We we don't know much about his his interview with Oprah except for what he tells us in the documentary. But he basically Burgoon was on a, a campaign to just get her information out. 
So he was going to go where to wherever he needed to he go. He could do that. Raise awareness for her. Right. Yeah. Which so, is why you guys have done the documentary exactly. and why we're talking about this. Because this little girl needs some closure. Mm-hmm. And uh, if her family doesn't know, the family needs some closure. Yeah, absolutely. And the people who have actually worked on the case need some closure. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I understand that the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department have dedicated a room to St. Louis baby Jane Doe and are still actively working the case. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, they still they're still working it actively, and Detective Bragoon still gets calls now. Wow! And only thing he can do is just he refers them to the the detective that's running it now. But for him to still receive calls and receive information, and for him to be so for because he's he retired from St. Louis City, he's out doing work with St. Louis County. But this case has stuck with him. He checks in every now and then just mm-hmm. to see what what's new. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a phenomenal job. I really appreciate Detective Bragoon doing everything he's done. Did you have any difficulty getting anybody to talk about the case, or were people just more than willing to discuss and reveal the information that they knew? Or did you have to pry it out of them, or people were like, no, no, I don't want to talk about that? They we were didn't. open to talking about it. They want to raise awareness to it. They feel like it's been a long time, as we all feel, and she needs justice. That's a lot point. of people out there now when they see that we were doing it they were like oh i've always i've been fascinated with this case when we were on the greenway right where the building used to stand there's a a path that people walk called they call it the greenway now right walking park Mm -hmm. and we were on the greenway doing an interview with eric and a photographer that worked for the greenway just happened to be out taking pictures on the greenway and actually while we're interviewing she stops and interviews us Wow. <laughs> so, because she was fascinated with the case as well and she figured it would be good good publicity for the greenway it helped her do her job because it wasn't anybody out for real and she was trying to get pictures of people on the greenway using utilizing the greenway so what better way to utilize it and to show that it's utilization is there's a whole documentary being filmed on it that's great <laughs> and that particular building where she was found has been demolished it's no longer there correct, correct. yes it's a similar building close to there, but the actual building is not there. Is it a nursing home or a senior living building? No. Okay, okay. Yeah. And this is my last question. What impacted you the most from this particular story? And you don't have to think right away. I'll give you a little bit of time to think about that. Personally, what impacted you? Because, folks, what we're talking about, we're talking about the story of our precious hope, St. Louis's baby Jane Doe, who was a girl who's between the ages of 8 and 11, roughly 61 pounds, the height of 5 feet 10 inches without her head and neck, and between 5 feet 3 and 5 foot 4 if those were still there. And she had been, her neck and head were chopped off. She didn't have any blood in her body. She was left in an abandoned building and had been murdered in another place and then brought there. This is the story we're talking about. So as we come back to this, Lee and Shelby, what impacted you the most from this story? How has this personally impacted you? The situation from the story is what impacted me the most because I do have children, I have a dad, and I do have friends. So when I hear something like this, and this does happen in our St. Louis everyday-to-day lives, unfortunately, in today's times, it really did make me feel for the person because they lost their sister, their daughter, their cousin, their loved one, and we're not able to find peace in that because they don't know who she is or they don't know any information. Mm -hmm. So I 
think of it is if I was lost, I would want someone to search endlessly for me. Or if someone I know was lost, I would search endlessly for them, try to get the best information possible, and just to keep it going until I do get that piece. And that's what impacts me the most with it. Uh, what impacted me the most was the just the brutality of the killing. No one should lose their life to senseless violence, but to lose it in that way at such a young age, she hadn't experienced anything. But it makes me think about my own daughters. I'm, I'm a, a single father, and I, I wouldn't know what to do if I lost my children, or just one of them. So to know that baby went through what she went through alone is heart-wrenching. So I, I, and from the moment, like I said, from the moment I first heard about it, because some of the pictures that I saw when I first started looking into, they didn't show, I didn't see the ones that we actually have. You just saw pictures of her bound hands and little, little bitty fingers. But after doing this documentary and seeing everything that I saw through the research is the, the, to know that people can be that cruel, brutal. And I'm at a loss for words almost. It's horrible. It's horrible. You brought up something that I had forgotten to hit on was the use of psychics by mm -hmm. law enforcement to uh, try to – they came, I think, to approach law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I don't think law enforcement approached no, them. No, no, they, they reached out to law enforcement. <laughs> and that the actual sweater and what she was bound with were sent to a psychic, mm -hmm. and they haven't gotten them back yet. No, they said that the sweater was lost in the mail. I was, mm -hmm. Are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah, and law enforcement gets a lot of flack for that because they say, why wouldn't you just send a piece or, or why would you even deal with a psychic? But at the time, like we, when speaking with uh, Detective Bagoon, those are the questions we asked as well. He, like the way he broke it down, it just made sense. He's like, well, we were at a loss. We didn't have any mm -hmm. other option. We're going to take all the help we can get. And I don't like that happened because that was, that was, she had no bottoms. So that was the only physical piece of clothing she had. So it definitely, I know that was a major hit to the case, especially with DNA being where it is now. Right. It would have definitely been able to help. Right. And I think things have changed over the course of time where there are procedures for if we're going to share evidence, mm -hmm. maybe that person comes in yeah. rather than the information goes out unless yeah. it's. And they're more, they're very, they're way more strict on the chain of what's the word, chain of custody. Right. You know? So. Yeah, they would have to come and talk to him then and not be, have anything sent to him. <laughs> this has been a very shocking and I don't want to say informative because it's – but you all produced the documentary to inform people, to bring awareness to this particular girl's plight. Absolutely. And that maybe there's somebody out there that still knows something or knows about something else or is involved or some way because you, many times – Somebody always sees something. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And maybe they just don't think about it at the time. They're not yeah. uh, giving it any credence. Right. And, oh, they were just carrying a, a rug in there or something mm -hmm. or how, however it was. Right. So I greatly appreciate your dad taking this project on and, and Shelby, you working on this and Lee, you getting involved with this production also. I, I thought that for what you guys have done for the budget, because you see all these massive budget yeah. films and what mm -hmm. they've done, I thought you did a great job. Thank and you. Thank it's something that I know it hopefully will bring awareness to people out there. I want to encourage you to take a look at it. You can find the Precious Hope St. Louis Baby Jane Doe available on 314birdstudios.com or on Roku, YouTube, or Amazon Fire TV. Shelby and Lee, thanks for coming on the show today. No Thank problem. you. Thank you for having us. 
We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast to keep up on all of the latest episodes. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.